The Real Estate Unsuccess Stories podcast features people from the real estate community sharing real stories about their struggles, pains, and even losses during their own real estate journey. We share these real experiences so you can learn from them and build a successful journey of your own. Now, here's your host, Cody Lewis, one of the managing partners at Vindu Capital, located in Charleston, South Carolina. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to have you back, but I'm even more excited for our special guest today. He is the one of the managing partners and the director of acquisitions at Quattro Capital, Mr. Chad Sutton. Chad, how are you, sir? Cody, doing well, sir. Happy New Year. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Happy New Year to you and uh, pulling back the curtain a little bit. Thanks for joining us in such inclement weather there. Uh, I know snow is not always prevalent, but you know, fun when it happens to an extent. So thank you for getting on and hanging out with us today. Yeah, not a problem. You know, I was just telling Cody how I had to de-ice my dog as I was bringing her back inside from the snow day before this episode. But, you know, at least we got to enjoy it a little bit. Kids had fun and everyone's safe. Listen, snow was made for kids. Let's just be honest. That's yes. that's the best thing about it. Snow um, and Disney World, right? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. We can talk about that at a, a, another date too. That's always fun. But hey, for those that maybe are, are hearing your name and voice for the first time, would love to get your origin story, you know, where, you, where you're from, how you got into real estate, and what you guys are kind of doing these days. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the best way to describe me, I'm a creator, right? I, I was kind of destined to be an engineer from a young age. I had that Lego Connects erector set brain, you know, it's all I ever did as a kid. And so the world told me I needed to be an engineer. I did. I, I grew up in a, you know, middle class uh, um, American family. You know, my parents worked very hard, made a decent living, you know, and I learned a lot from them, you know, parents, grandparents, everyone like that. So they were always of the mindset, as long as our kids are a little better than we are, we're doing good, you know, and, and that happened, right? We, we, we all got a little bit better. So proceeded into a career in engineering after you know, going to to uh, undergraduate and master's degree for that. And I worked in some pretty cool stuff for a while, y'all. I, was a, I worked for NASA when the space shuttle was still flying, worked on that propulsion system, worked on some aircraft engines that you've probably, if you've flown Southwest or any other major airline, you're probably flying on something I helped build. So lots of cool, you know, background stories there. But, you know, like a lot of people do, I read a couple of books at some point, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Richest Man in Babylon. Let's go down the, down the line there. And I discovered, you know, trading time for money is not going to get me where I want to go. And I further discovered in my field that, wow, I'm really just a highly paid laborer that, you know, is a necessary evil. And the second the company doesn't need me, I'm gone, right? Because I watched that happen way too many times to other individuals who are in the wrong place at the wrong time. And you know, every project you do as an engineer, you find out, well, gee, you know, every time I do a project, the budget gets smaller and the headcount gets smaller. It's like they're trying to just, if they didn't have to have an engineering workforce to develop a product, they wouldn't have it. Right. So one thing I learned very early where my, my, where I was in the pecking order, eventually, you know, I was a member of a team where around the time the GE stock price plummeted, and many of you remember that in the news, I was picked for an, kind of an internal consulting team that we formed, like a, a KPNG or a McKinsey and Deloitte, but it was internal to GE to work on our internal systems. My entire job, Cody, was to fly around the world and figure out how do I make profit margin better in these different manufacturing houses. So I touched wind turbines, I touched uh, uh, aircraft engines, I touched healthcare devices. I mean, 
everything GE did, I got to touch and it was really neat because that's, that's kind of how I learned my business savvy that goes along with the technical aspect of it. And it was really rewarding. It was, but the problem with it is that then led to a supply chain career. And if you've ever been in supply chain, you know, it's dog eat dog out there. And for me to win, someone else has to lose. Right. So that didn't really sit well with me because this is say, for example, my job is to get the lowest price on something. I'm an international negotiator. I would have to go over to a com company in, let's say, Poland, you know, and, and their neighboring company in Hungary and stuff like that. And I would have to select who's going to have most of my volume this year. Well, if it's a mom and pop company and I'm most of their volume, whatever decision I make, some people are going to be out of a job, you know, and then you had to walk in that factory and look them in the eye. So I quickly learned the difference between a zero sum game and a and an infinite sum game, right? So things like the stock market, someone else has to lose for you to win. You know, th there's only so much to, to be had there. Whereas, you know, what gravitated me towards real estate, and then I think we can kind of move on to the next question is, it's an infinite sum game, right? I finally discovered something to where I don't have to be on the other side of the table from everybody. My residents win, my investors win, we win, the community wins, my employees who work for the property win, you know, because I'm creating jobs and, and stability. So it's like, it's, it's an infinite sum game. I can sit here in my own little vacuum and create value all day long and not hurt anybody, you know? So that's kind of where we are. And then you also mentioned, what are we doing nowadays? Each of my managing partners in uh, Quattro Capital, I'm one of five. We were all accomplished professionals and investors before, but we came together and figured out, wow, A, we have a lot of synergy, B, we think alike, and C, we're just, we're better together. The speed with which we wanted to move, we were able to do that with bringing our times and talents together. And nowadays, you know, we are acquiring roughly about 50 to 75 million in real estate assets annually. That's, that's, you know, roughly four transactions a year at the size that we're doing. We're bringing investors with us. We're putting, we're growing our own wealth and fortunes and we're improving community after community after community. So, you know, the question is, you know, what are we not doing, you know, but it, I think we're really focused in the apartment space these days and, you know, trying to solve the not affordable housing is that that kind of has a, a certain, you know, niche affordable housing almost talks about section eight and things like that. And then they have your luxury housing. We're trying to hit that middle of the road. You know, a friend of mine called it attainable housing, right? It, it is nice quality, not new, but refreshed. And, you know, it, it's well below a lot of the new luxury product that a lot of people can't afford that are working, uh, you know, salary jobs. So that's where yeah. we are, brother. Man, I love it. And we were fortunate enough to have on one of your other managing partners, Maurice Philogene, on here. So uh, we love what you guys do and what you stand for. So uh, we really appreciate that. And to your point, Chad, I, I think that's interesting what you said, because it reminds me a little bit of my own career that I work for a very big, you know, Fortune 100 company, Fortune 10 company. And they decided globally that my position didn't need to exist anymore. And that was the first lesson I learned. And it doesn't matter how successful you are in your job, that you're still beholding to your company or somebody else. So that was the first chink of like, hey, what is there something else I could do? I had several other W-2 jobs after that, but that that started the the aval the snowball that turned into an avalanche eventually. So I, yeah. I, I love your story. And I would argue that the higher up the ladder you get, the bigger the target on your back is because there's always someone else either wanting your job or wanting to eliminate that big overhead, you know? Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Well, tell me this. We brought you on, you know, I, I love the origin story, but we brought you on to, you know, help us 
learn a little bit from your career and specifically maybe from a misstep or uh, an unsuccess, if you will, or even a failure. So tell us a little bit about uh, what comes to mind. Yeah. And guys, I hate to break it to you. You know, uh, this is not a rainbows and unicorns business, right? This is a business full of people. Your residents are people. Yes, you're buying a building that they live in, but you're dealing with people and people are messy, especially when the world is messy. And so let's go back in time. Let's go back in time to 2020, not long ago, but very recent and relevant in everyone's past. So we're talking about just prior to COVID. Now I happened to be in a, in a, you know, exiting corporate America at the time. And I, I saw COVID coming from China, right? I had suppliers all over the world. I watched it leapfrog from China to, to uh, you know, to, to the Eastern Europe region, to the Western Europe region, and then eventually land over here. So I knew it was coming, but I didn't really, none of us wanted to believe it would be like, no, we're not, things aren't going to shut down. No, we're not going to see it upset supply chains. No, you know, and who would have thought, <clears throat> well, I'll save that, save that surprise for later. We were acquiring, we were acquiring a small 36 unit apartment building in West Atlanta. Okay. Now this was to be a, a personal investment. This was not a, a group syndication syndicated effort. And it was indeed a class D building. For those of you who don't know what that means, that means it's basically in a very rough area of town. It, the, the area was trending. We had a very defined path of progress but it was going to be a heavy lift where we were intending to go in and, and evict about 40% of the tenant base in the first month. The reason is they were either lawbreakers, drug dealers, um, or hadn't paid rent in six months, right? So it was definitely going to be a heavy lift from day one. So we proceed through our planning, our underwriting, our due diligence as, as usual, and we close on March the 18th, I believe it was, of 2020. Those of you in the industry will remember a little thing called an eviction moratorium that showed up right after that. Who in, the, who in this business had ever heard, ever, of an eviction moratorium? I mean, that was unprecedented. Symbol argued it was unconstitutional. You know, we're not going to get into politics on here, but the, pro the point is it was different. It was different, and it, it, we had just bought an asset where we needed to evict immediately. Right. And at that time, eventually they clarified that it was for COVID related incident, which is hard to prove. But at that time, all evictions stopped. The world started shutting down. COVID had just hit our, our, our doorstep. The world was shutting down. The financial markets were shutting down. Stock market plummeted. This was right at the beginning. Right. So immediately we're like, OK, well, back to the drawing board. So mistake number one. We did not fund everything we needed in that project up front because we bought it ourselves. We we're like, okay, well, it's cash flowing well enough. We'll use some of that and we'll bring a little bit of money, right? Well, let me tell you what happens with this type of resident base. And I'm going to call this a tenant base. There, there are resident bases out there. I call most of my residents residents because there's a mutual respect. This was a tenant base. There was no respect, right? This was the type of, of clientele that, Someone gets on the TV and says, you don't have to pay rent. They stop, right? Half of them weren't doing it anyway. What are you going to do? You know, this is the kind of clientele who right after we spent about $10,000 <clears> later that year around the 4th of July to, or on end of June to encapsulate the basements and fix a mold problem. 
this is the kind of tenant base that breaks into your crawl space, pulls out all the tarps and makes a slip and slide down MLK Boulevard for a block party on 4th of July. You cannot make this stuff up. That's the kind of clientele that we're dealing with. Okay. So what did we do? All of a sudden, imagine you've just bought an asset with a lot of your own money, right? All of your own money. Your plan is now upside down because policy came through that was unforeseen and unprecedented. And you don't have enough, you just lost your cash flow, all of it, because everyone stopped, right? This is our only property that did that, by the way. <clears throat> and, you know, everything you do just gets undone by the resident. You, you renovate a unit, they tear it up. You know, you fix something, they tear it up. So what do you do? I mean, I mean, what would you do in that situation, Cody? I mean, this, this is mind blowing. Well, so, and I think, I think to your point, this is, this is where the entrepreneurial spirit comes in. I think it's an undersold point of, of being an entrepreneur, which is what we are in, the, in this real estate investment space is you got to be able to handle the curves. Even if they are unprecedented curves, you still have to be able to think through them. That's the thing. And, you know, think is key. If I guess thinking through everything here, you know, we've now laid out the problem, right? We'll get to the solution, but you know, for those of you who are looking for places to invest your money or people to partner with on your own acquisitions or something like that, think about that because everyone can write a great plan. And but plans are useless after day one. That that is just a guiding light. You know, that's like the GPS. That has no I no that GPS, those court there, that GPS map is not going to make the car go where you want it to go. The driver has to make the car go where you want it to go. And you may come into a wreck and have to take a detour and you may come into a bridge that's out and have to turn around and go back the other way. As long as you get to the end, you know, you successfully arrived at your destination. Well, how did we do that? So first thing we had to do was regroup on cash because immediately we're like, okay, now we don't have cash flow. We've got bills to pay, right? We need to fix the property up. And we didn't fund enough money for this. Like on a, on a lift like this, if you take nothing else away, fund everything you need up front and put it in the bank or have a loan that you can draw on one of the two. Do not assume any sort of cash flow will be there in a heavy lift like this, because as soon as you need it, it won't be. Thank God this was not a, a, an investment where we had used outside capital. So we, because we would have immediately been capital calling our investors. That's a, that's a dirty word in our syndication industry. So that's what we did. We first had to say, okay, well, we're all coming to the table with more money. We're going to have to, you know, one of our partners did more so than that. It was, you know, a project that he was heavily leveraged in already, but we had to float it. We had to float the entire thing uh, for a good, I don't know, six, eight months before it started kind of at least supporting its own again. How do we get people to leave? Because imagine you have a resident who, they're, get, they're now being told they don't have to pay rent. They're, they can stay for free. They probably can't qualify anywhere else they want to go. So you can't just go to them and say, hey, here's a thousand bucks. Get out cash for keys, right? Because they're like, well, where am I going to go? This, that's too hard. I don't want to move, you know? So what did we do? You know, eventually we were able to, eat, you know, start nabbing people for violation of lease and getting them set out. So there was some of that. Some of them actually did take advantage of a limited cash for keys program we did. So the, the first thing we're doing is like, all right, we're now negative cash flow. I now have to vacate the property, right? Slowly. And it took about six, seven months longer than we thought it would to vacate the property down to about 50% occupancy. 
lender is breathing down our throat because the loan we got on this property did not intend that to have a huge step in vacancy. We were going to do it in a more controlled manner, but couldn't do that in this situation. So we, we basically found ourselves with a half occupied property, a, you know, we had to put additional money in it to feed the expenses because it wasn't covering its own stuff right now and do the capital expenses. Right. So eventually we were able to, and the, the, the second lesson here, by the way, is capital and time can weather all storms. The only way you lose in this business period is you, you run out of money or you don't have time. And, and you know what? Money buys you time. So mm -hmm. underfunding is the biggest mistake you can make in this business. Um, so luckily we were able to fund the project and we were able to start getting units not fully renovated, but done enough to be like a nice section eight level. That's, that's what this area was going to be, right? The right play for this building was probably going to be a condo redevelopment, but we, we weren't thinking about that at the time. Uh, we also put the, long, the wrong loan on it, right? We had a, 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 an agency loan that was a 10-year note. And it, you know, we should have done a short-term bridge note on this and put all the capex on there. And if if I go back and do it again, so we should have done, but we didn't. So eventually, we start getting things renovated and we start trying to lease up quickly. Well, again, we're in the middle of COVID. Nobody's moving, right? So we had to get creative. So we get together, like, how are we going to find these residents? You know, and by the way, these were renting at seven hundred bucks, and we bought it. Rent was easily 900, 950, just to, just to, if you could just get someone to move, right? So we start going out to charities and we start looking for charity back tenants who, let's say it's someone who's coming from a rough area in life, like a, a you know, a battered women's type of thing, or, you know, a, a get back on your feet after getting out of prison type of thing. Like there are good people out there who need a second chance and these, these organizations are willing to sponsor them for about a year. So we started leasing up with that quickly and affordable housing was such a problem in Atlanta that we had to do it quickly, you know, and we were able to do it quickly. So we start getting tenants leased up that way. We've now got the good tenants that were about 50%. And now we've got charity back tenants here. We got the thing fold up, filled up at about $900. And we said, okay, well, it looks great on paper because the asset price was through the roof because NOI was up and the cap rate was really compressed because we're in Atlanta, Right. And so it's, it's an example of, we were not doing well on paper, but, but, uh, or, or operationally, um, as far as cash flow goes, but we were doing great on, on, on the asset price. So that's the situation where you say, okay, well, we've got it where it needs to be. The GPS went backwards and around, around grandma's house and back over to the lake and over to, to where we need to get, but we eventually got it where it needed to be. And we took it to market, we sold it. And so we bought that property for, 2.5 million dollars in in 2020 and we sold it middle of 2021 for 3.6 so wow. we were able to get all of our money on it and then some we didn't make a huge profit but we made we made money and for as far as i'm concerned that was probably our biggest unsuccess story and i would have you know even if we lost money i would have called it a success because that was the best on the job lesson that I think you can ever get living through something like that, you know, in an unprecedented time, a, we learned how to figure things out in the space. B we, we learned what it's like to have to feed a project, you know, 
uh, cash flow for a while and see, we came out on top. We figured it out. You know, that's the biggest thing you have to have in this business is a PhD in figuring things out. Yep. Well, and listen, I, what I heard you say without saying it is, and we've heard this before, when you're investing in deals, especially if you're passively investing in deals, the number one thing you should look for is not the market, not the deal, the operator. The operator is the most important thing. And, and what I was hearing when you were telling that story is that y'all are able to evolve and think on your feet based on your experience and all the different things that y'all brought to the table previous to real estate even. What y'all able to do, save that property. That's right. And, and I, and I want to make sure that people at home are listening because when you're looking to get into real estate, especially if you're going to be investing, whether it's the first time or the hundredth time, the most important thing is the operating team. Because to your point, the GPS is just the suggestion. You're going to face all kinds of obstacles along the way, big or small, or both. That operator is going to be, need to be the one steering the car or the vessel, or whatever it is. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the thing I mentioned to people who are asking me where they should invest, and I, I never recommend invest with us. I mean, obviously we're a good choice. We, we do well, but we, we're not for everybody. Quattro is for everyone, but we're, we are open to everyone, but we're not for everyone. Does that make Correct. sense? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. We have, a, we have a certain niche we play by and it may not be yours, but I would take a B-class project with an A-class team over an A-class project with a B-class team all day long, right? Because that A-class team is going to figure out how to make it into an A-plus, you know, or at, at baseline, they're going to figure out how to, you know, how to at least make it stay the, the course, whereas that A-plus project might be a C by the time someone who doesn't know what they're doing gets done with it, you know? Right. It, I mean, you can't, you can't hand a toddler lemons, sugar, ice, and a pitcher and say, make lemonade if they don't know how, right? Right. That sounds like, I have toddlers, that sounds like a disaster waiting to happen in my yeah. house. The lemons would be all over the floor, you know, so. <laughs> and the sugar would be eaten by the handful. Exactly. Uh, well, Chad, I think that's an invaluable story. And I appreciate you coming on here and being open and, and telling that sort of thing and, and kind of opening up to the audience. So I, I honestly can't thank you enough for the time today. Sure. And guys, that, that's a good way to get to know an operator. Ask, I mean, everyone talks about how, how good they are and things that they've talked about that, done, that does well. You know, ask them what didn't go well. I mean, you'll really learn, you'll really see their experience because everyone's got them. I mean, we have a saying here in Nashville, Tennessee, where, where I live, where musicians are made every day, right? It takes 10 years to be an overnight success, right? Mm -hmm. But all, everyone only pays attention to the overnight success part. They don't watch the 10 years of failures you had before that. You right. Know? Exactly. Well, Chad, thank you so much. Where, if folks want to work with you, partner with you, invest with Quattro, whatever it may be, where's the best place folks can find you at? Yeah, the easiest way to find me in general and connect with Quattro and our investments and our podcasts, everything like that, go to chadsutton.info. That's C-H-A-D-S-U-T-T-O-N dot I-N-F-O. And you'll be brought to a page that has links to all that stuff. But um, you know, definitely go check out our podcast. If you want to learn more real estate runway, anywhere you get podcasts and we are actively, you know, working on, uh, typically B class multifamily projects that can be taken to like a B plus plus, if you will. We really like taking that, that mixture of white and blue collar tenant base and, and improving properties like that. So if that interests you, we'd love to have a conversation. Perfect. Well, Chad, thank you again so much for joining us and thank you everyone for listening at home. We'll catch you next time.
You've been listening to the Real Estate Unsuccess Stories podcast with Cody Lewis. Be sure to subscribe today on your favorite podcasting platform so you can catch every episode of the Real Estate Unsuccess Stories podcast.